Listener Production. A couple of years ago, I did a reality TV show called The Real Dirty Dancing. As part of the process, we had to get in touch with our sexy sides. Now, I got very teary during an episode and I hadn't expected to be quite so emotional. And it turned out it was because I felt that I'd lost a part of myself in the crazy, busy world of being a mum, a wife, a daughter and a friend. I was all things to everyone but myself. After the show aired, I was blown away by the DMs and messages that I got from so many women who were also at a similar stage in their lives. And they wanted to know how to find that part of themselves again. That was such a relief to hear that. It wasn't just me who was feeling this. So my big question this week is, what is the secret to unlocking our sexual desire? And I have the most incredible woman to help me answer this. It's New York Times best-selling author, Lisa Tadeo, who's adapted her groundbreaking book, Three Women, about women's desire into a show that you can now watch on Stan. Oh, Lisa, what a treat for me to be talking with you. I'm a massive fan of your work. I inhaled your book, Three Women, and I've just finished binge watching the series now on Stan. Oh, it is, it's phenomenal. And why I'm so excited to have you is that I think you are the perfect person to be answering our big question, which is, what is the secret to unlocking our sexual desires. <laughs> the secret to unlocking our sexual desires. Um, I think in a word that I, I will expand a bit, but I think the main word is honesty. Um, I think that, you know, as women in particular, we have been condemned to not be honest our whole lives. When we're, you know, young, we are told to put certain things away to not be on display in a certain way. And then there's like this, we're kind of like an avocado. There's like a perfect amount of ripeness and we need to just hit that time and have the babies during that time be desirable a little bit before that, then be undesirable right after that. And then maybe if you want to have a renaissance, you know, later in your 50s, you can, but only if these X, Y, Z things are met. And I obviously think that that is a load of BS. And that what we need to do is be our truest, honest selves at every point in our development. Obviously, as we get older, it gets easier to do that. So I think what the number one key is also, second to honesty, is for younger women and older women to, and by that, I mean any ages. I don't mean like older women are only over you know, 80 and younger women are only under 30 or whatever for all ages of women to talk to one another without the sort of like, oh, she doesn't know anything, she's a child, or oh God, what would she know back, you know, when she didn't have Instagram when she was growing up, she doesn't understand this, to get past that stuff because that stuff is flotsam and debris in the grand scheme, to get past that and actually talk to each other so that we can learn from one another in real time. And that's how I think you unlock the ability not only 
to have a desire, but to get that desire met. Because I think that other women hold the keys to what we can learn. And we can learn from our younger selves just as we can learn from our older selves. And I think to just remove all of that other stuff that keeps us from coming together is the key. I think that is fascinating the way you talk about the need for honesty, honesty with ourselves as well, what it is that we desire, and also to dropping the judgment because we can we can be judgmental and and I'm guilty of that too. When I read about the incredible women that you spent time with and wrote about in your book and we see on the screen Maggie, Lena and Sloane, at different parts of all of their stories, there was a part of me too that that was judgmental, mm-hmm. that was sort of thinking, what are they doing? Mm-hmm. Why are they thinking that's okay? That's not okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's normal. Obviously, our own judgment is usually, you know, us judging ourselves or it's us, you know, being, oh, why didn't I do that? I didn't get to do that. Why does she get to do that? There's a lot of that. It's normal. You know, it's not, it's not abnormal in any way but it it does prevent us from getting to that higher place. And, you know, and judgment is also, it's a protective tool. If we can, you know, judge someone else, we can keep the parts of ourselves at bay that we don't want to see. And we can illuminate them, you know, we can just feel better. It's a matter of survival, really. And I think it's a struggle to not judge because, you know, we do it out of survival. Anything we do out of survival is, is a struggle to not do it. But I do think that that is the key. Did anything surprise you about the desires of these women? You know, one of the things that I was the most surprised about, I think specifically because people were like, oh my God, you all you want to do, you just want to write about sex. You're just, ah. and it's like, I was surprised by how wildly prudish I am and was in relation to others. Like, you know, Lena, for example, the housewife in Indiana who has the affair with her high school boyfriend, uh, she was this good, you know, quote unquote, good Catholic girl from Indiana who would never curse or take the Lord's name in vain, yet she's going to meet this man and she's sending me these um, missives on Facebook that were so like anatomically correct of where, you know, this part of his body was at what time. Um, And I was just like, whoa, you know, there was, so I was like, I was flabbergasted by the amount of, of wild uh, sex people were having across the board. People that, you know, and of course, you're also surprised in a different way where people that you think are, are doing crazy things are perhaps a little bit more tame. For me, because I got to, you know, see under the covers, to, to use a bad pun, because I got to see that there was a lot of surprise because what people show you on the surface is rarely what they are behind closed doors. And is that also, do you think, perhaps part of that secret to unlocking our sexual desires, that need to drop the facade? Because all of us run around with these masks and feel that we have to fulfill these certain roles. And I'm generalizing, but I think women probably do that more than men. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think that the facade is still so strong that even in this post me too world you know i think we there's a new facade where now we have to you know show our feminist let our feminist flag fly more you know broadly than than another one even if that's not the flag that we are most concerned with in the moment i think it's still you know it's like it's still so performative for women 
so much of our lives need to be performed. And it is a real disservice to our entire gender that we continue to do it, not just for men or, you know, heterosexual women for men and or whatnot, but also heterosexual women for other women. You know, it's quite a travesty, I think, but I think it is utterly created by the society that, you know, this patriarchal society, we are still living in the hangover of it. Um, and I don't know when the hangover will end. Like any hangover, you hope it ends sooner than it usually does. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> because it is, as you say, it's so hard though. Still, I think, I like to think of myself, yes, I'm a feminist, I'm a strong woman, I'm much more comfortable in my skin as a 53-year-old, but it's still hard to ask for what I want. Mm -hmm. And why is that as women? I mean, I, I was interested to read that you still apologize for things. I constantly do. I try, you know, I, it's, there was a, a New York Times article a couple of months ago that I really liked because it was kind of everything that I do believe in that, you know, it was like people keep telling women to stop apologizing in their emails, but perhaps men and, and people who don't apologize should apologize a bit more. Perhaps that's the right way to do it. And I really did enjoy that because I think that we, apologizing is not necessarily a bad thing if other people are doing it too. You know, essentially, if we're all kind of people pleasing, it's okay in a sense to people please. But if it's just women, if it's just one gender doing it, that's not okay. So I, I don't know that the answer is for, for women to stop, you know, doing all that stuff. But I think if we can sort of meet more in the middle, obviously that, you know, that's the, the idea of a cooperative society is something I'm, I try to wrap my head around. I don't know if it's quite a possible thing, but I do think that, uh, I thought that was interesting. But yes, I, I, if, if men are not going to start apologizing, then women should stop apologizing as much. But if we could somehow meet in the middle, that would be my idea. Wouldn't it be wonderful? And do you think as well that also comes to our sexual desire? If we weren't apologizing for what it is we desire or want and aren't getting? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think that the very, when you talk about apology like that, the very nature of apologizing for wanting something, you know, it means obviously someone else can say no to you, but you should be able to ask, right? And I think that the fear to ask is a thing that's been drummed into us, um, a fear to ask for a raise, a fear to ask, you know, for, for anything, it's like, you know, you can't want that much. There is a certain amount that you can want. Here is your allotment. And we do it subconsciously to everybody in our lives, you know, including ourselves. If, if we have been taught that, you know, that we are meant for larger things and, you know, maybe we are okay with ask, but most of us are not. Most of us are, you know, I had a very weird situation with me where I had growing up where I had a father who was like, you can do anything. You can be anything you want. Uh, you know, you're number one, et cetera. And then I had my mother who would like, you know, this immigrant from Italy who would be like, ah, no, you must not do that. They will find you and hunt you down and they will put you in a way for wanting more than no, that's so whatever he said is wrong. This is not, you know, I know we're at whatever. So I had those two things constantly funneling into me as a child. So I have this like a slightly different view of it because I have this sort of like this, you know, eagle's eye view in that sense of, of the two disparate ways of being 
told to be in the world, essentially. And also to your mom, didn't she say to you, don't show people that you're too happy yes. because that's the worst thing. It's the worst that's, thing. You I mean, that's awful advice. <laughs> you know, I, I know. Um, it's funny. It's like, it's, it's, there are so many things that my mother said to me that when I repeat them to other people, like, you know, because for me, it's like, you know, I can sort of metabolize it as, oh, my mom, uh, you know, I knew her uh, very well. We were very close. She was a sort of like, she was a character. And I, you know, I can sort of discuss the things that, and, and make excuses for them. But when I say them to other people sometimes, and not sometimes, almost all the time, they're like, your brother said that to you? The other day I told someone, kind of like I was just, you know, like not like saying it like it was a trauma, which perhaps, you know, obviously I need to do more digging on that one. But I was like, yes, my mother told me I would never be a good mother. And I said it like kind of like jokingly, like, you know, like in a joking manner. And the person was like, what? And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I guess that, I guess that's kind of a big thing. You know, she was, she was joking when she said it. Yes. Did we have a sort of certain relationship where like we would, yes, but still, you know, even so there are things that are just, you know, you're like, that, that sort of explode my brain even, even now, but yes. And also you internalize them. You don't sort of realize, but then they become no. part of your exactly. internal sort of monologue and narrative. Exactly. And I think as well, picking up on that notion of, you know, you won't be a good mother. I think for some women, you know, the different roles that we assume in our lives with sort of this, you know, a mantle of, okay, I'm now in mothering mode. So then it can be hard to access that sexual part of yourself still. Totally. Because you, you then shut down. Totally. How do we overcome that? I mean, you know, I think that there is a lot to be said for piecing yourself off a little bit. There's this whole you know, there's this idea of like, you have to be your your authentic self at all times. And I do, of course, agree and believe in that. But I do think there's something to be said for, you know, for tending to a certain audience. And if that audience right now is your children, you know, then you're in front of them, you're this, you know, and then when you step away from that, there has to be a sort of practice. I'm not saying that I can do it because I I haven't been able to, but I think I've seen other people do it. I think there is a sort of like, you know, there's a a definable shift where where someone almost puts on other clothes, puts on a different sort of, you know, face and becomes something else to be able to be there for, you know, a, a different need of their own. And it's about claiming that need and still saying, yes. this is important to me. I went through a time where I did a reality show called The Real Dirty Dancing and we had to get in touch with our sexy side. And I really struggled with that. And, and I got quite emotional about it. And a lot of women reached out to me saying that they were at the same sort of point in their lives. Jess, this is the gig, right? <laughs> this is the gig. This is the gig, and you, you just have to embrace it. Okay. Hand behind the head, boom. Yes. And down. And, uh, feel the difference? Mm. Oh my God! Crybies! <laughs> yeah. Jess's mental hurdle is that she needs to get out of, I'm a mum, I shouldn't be here doing this, I shouldn't be wearing skimpy clothes. And she really needs to let that go and embrace the sexiness that, that she has, which is a bombshell. I think for me, why I'm finding it hard is that I'm realising that 
there's almost a part of me that's kind of shut down and being the mum as opposed to the woman. So I think a lot of us are looking, yearning for how can we tap into that sexy part of ourselves? And and I suppose we look to people like you who write so beautifully about sex, who now have this incredible show on the screen. How can we do it? I think Lena, honestly, is a really dynamic and amazing example because she, of all the people who would be able to tap into that side, you would not think having met her when I met her before she had done any of that, before she started first, you know, she lost a lot of weight. She wasn't, you know, heavier and she just lost when she got to a, she changed her body into something that, you know, she wanted to see. So that was sort of the first step, but it was just even prioritizing exercising over, you know, some school pickups that she might have been doing. There were just things that as a mother uh, in Indiana, a Catholic mother in, you know, where, where that wasn't, she, nothing she did was quote unquote correct or allowed, but she did all those things. And it started with, you know, with prioritizing her health and her body. It's funny because the personal trainer who worked at the doctor's office that Lena was going to, and I say personal trainer, it wasn't, you know, he was a very nice young man, but it wasn't like some boutique office. It was just a, a guy who was kind of like telling, you know, but he would say that it was almost a science. He could see the second that a woman started concentrating on the way that she sort of like felt and looked in her body, she would then, you know, show her husband her, you know, she'd be so proud and excited. And then if he did not react the way that she thought he should after all this work had been done, she would leave. And, and this was happening a lot within, you know, in his purview. And I thought it was so interesting. So I think that's a big thing. I think that, you know, I myself have gone through times where I haven't cared about anything about how I look and the pandemic, <clears throat> um, <laughs> you know, millions of other times, you know, and, and we go through these sort of like roller coasters of not of going like, oh, it doesn't matter how, you know, I'm just going to work. I'm going to focus on my work. I'm going to focus on my child. I'm going to focus on this. I think that maintaining the body aspect and and that, which is something that I, I myself need to, you know, get back into that mindset because I have been out of that mindset for a long time. But I think that's number one, I think, which is one of the reasons why we showed so much explicit stuff in the show, because so much of it was about reclaiming the female body. Let's talk then about that explicit stuff. So for our listeners who haven't seen the series yet, oh my God, when I was watching it, it is so steamy. It's, I mean, it's hot. It's really hot to watch. But then also, and I suppose tapping into what you mentioned before, Lisa, about feeling prudish, I mean, there's these massive penises. I was like, oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, as important as it was for us to have as much female talent behind the camera with all female directors and and music and and sound and and all and editing and all of that, it was equally important for me and our directors to have the opposite essentially represented in front of the camera to see that which we don't normally see as much. Um, male frontal nudity is, you know, pales in comparison 
quantity-wise to what you see female um, out in the world. And so we wanted that to be shifted for this, for, you know, for reasons of progress and equality and all that short, but also because the women, Lena in particular, desire to see that part of a band, to, to, to have utter, just a free-flowing conversation with, with someone's body in that way was so important to her. And she talked about it to me endlessly, the sort of the way that it looked, all of the, the sort of like as though it were a work of art that she had not been allowed to look at was something that we really wanted to uphold. And yes, you know, so it is rather, there's some shocking moments, but I personally felt that they were all, they were all real, first of all. They all really happened. They were all truly you know, and there's also the largesse was also the other thing that was talked about a lot by, you know, the women. We have so many men throughout history and films talking about like, you know, just glorifying this female or that female to glorify the male by the female and to see it then I think is what we owe ourselves. And as you say, it is refreshing. And I think you captured it incredibly on screen. Also, the way you write about sex is so good. How did you get so good (laughs) writing in a way? No, because it's hot when you read it, I find. How do you do that? I was very, very, very uh, conscious of not wanting it to be too, like, sort of medical, clinical, and also not too, like, horny. You know, so there were words, like, you know, I don't know what I can, but there were words that I I wouldn't. You can say, Lisa. (laughs) I wouldn't have wanted to say cock, for example. One, because, you know, Lena did not use it when she described Aiden. So that was, that was one aspect. If it was in the woman's parlance and, and way of speaking, then I would have used it. But if I was just sort of, you know, doing my own editorializing, I tried to keep it as middle of the road as possible and discussing more the movement of bodies rather than putting uh, any emphasis on the way that those bodies... Like, I wanted it to sort of disappear in a sense and for the emotion of it to be what was felt even as the specificity of it was ultra granular. And you do it so well with words. And I've done a little bit of writing in the past and I have to share this with you because it makes me laugh and blush actually when I think about it. I wrote a, sort of a memoir and initially my writing teacher had said, just let it, put it all in there. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I wrote, yeah, but I wrote all of this sex stuff and I remember it came back from the publisher and they were like, um, I think you might want to take all of that out because that is a different type of book. book. And <laughs> yeah. That's really funny. It is. And I had to laugh. And so I've literally deleted it from my computer, but I've printed it all out and I've shelved it away somewhere for another time. But only because it is, it's so hard to write well. And I think with what you do, you do it so incredibly well. And I'm sure if our listeners aren't already aware of your incredible book, Three Women and the TV series, when you wrote Three Women, it's immersive journalism. You spent, it was eight years and you lived in the towns with the women that you wrote about. So you knew them intrinsically, didn't you? Yes, 
I did. And I continue to. I mean, specifically with Maggie, who's the young woman who has an alleged relationship with her high school English teacher that she took to trial. With Maggie, it's uh, we talk, I would say, every day. And, you know, they each became a part of my life and I became a part of theirs. And yeah, I mean, it, it's weird and, and not at the same time. It's kind of weird and also feels sort of normal. I mean, it's odd, but it also has... It's been, you know, genuine relationships that I value and hold as dear as ones that, you know, have nothing to do with with writing. Well, because they opened not only their hearts, but their souls and their very essence to you. And I think that's why your book and your storytelling is so powerful. And do you think too, as well, it's because for so many women, they feel that their secret desires aren't being met and that there was almost a relief that they could read or identify a part of themselves in each of these three women's stories that might have been part of their their story that they thought, oh, that's me. Yeah. I mean, I think that was that was my hope because I saw myself in each of them, um, you know, some parts more than others and some, but at every time I was, every conversation I had with them, I would, it was always a conversation. It wasn't like me sitting there just with you know, I mean, yes, I had a pen and a tape recorder and all that, but I was also like telling my own story to them back. And the similarity is, you know, when you start to see, I think sometimes when we, you know, especially as we get older and and move into homes with families, we group ourselves or naturally get grouped with people in our socioeconomic um, spectrum or people with the same aged kids, et cetera, et cetera. But the experience of writing the book and talking to so many different women was seeing how many people I connected with who I might never meet in the regular trajectory of of my life in the way that, you know, where I've chosen to live or where my child or whatever. The sort of soul connection that I made is something that I feel like readers were able to feel with the women as well. And, And that is one of the greatest victories for me. And it is a victory, but when I think about the women that you met and that you interviewed that you share with us in the book and on screen, they stick with me. And there's moments where I walk through the world and have interactions with people and parts of what they've gone through will come into my head. And it's, I think that's what's so exciting about storytelling is that it can open your eyes to things that you never really had considered or thought about. And That's probably more a statement from me as opposed to a question. But what I'm leading to is with many people listening, they would be thinking, what is it that Lisa could tell us that could help us unlock a part of ourselves that we know's there, but we're too frightened or we've put it away for too long? I mean, you know, I think that something that helped me the other day, uh, I read someone's uh, idea of a time machine pretending that you have a time machine, that you're 80 years old and you go back into your, you know, 50-something-year-old body and you only have it for one day, what are you going to do with that? And just live your life that way. You know, and I think that is so powerful. And so, um, you know, sometimes with my daughter, I'm like, oh my God, she's getting older. Oh God, every day that passes. And then I'm like, well, no, just like pretend that she's already 40. You get her one more time today. And that does help me stave off some of the, oh God, I can't go back. I can't go back. 
I think that's helpful. I, I that does help me. I think, and what's funny, I, another thing I, because you just brought you'd brought it up before when we were talking, but I found um, a picture of myself when I was I don't know twenty. Um, I had climbed up to the top of this fountain um, in Puerto Rico on a vacation with my friend, and I was wearing this skirt and like a bustier belly top. And I remember putting on the outfit back then. And and going, oh God, I like I was, you know, upset about something with my body. And I looked at that picture of me from like, you know, 20 years ago and I was like, oh my God, you were beautiful. And you know, the idea of like going, oh my God, I'm gonna do that to myself now because it's, you know, it, it things just change. And and then I'm sure I'll look at my aged self and be like, oh wow, you're, you know, you've accomplished this or whatever. But but that conversation to be able to sort of you know, converse with yourself over time is something that is a useful tool to unlocking things. Oh, I think that's such a powerful way. So I hope, listeners, that you think about if I just have a day with my body or a moment with my body as it is today, my last day, what am I going to do with it? I think that's, I love that idea. Just finally, you mentioned your daughter. What sort of inner world and then outer world do you wish for her? I mean, I just read something the other day that Billie Eilish said, oh God, my daughter's eight, she's about to turn nine. And Billie Eilish said that she looks at eight-year-old girls and she's like, oh God, you're so lucky, but it's all about to change. And it was absolutely haunting for me. Um, What I want is to give her as much as humanly possible of an understanding of her own value and worth and to uh, keep the sort of the naysayers and all of that at bay for as long as possible until she's able to truly develop that armor because we do still need armor. Yes, part of it is about letting go and being honest and being yourself and unlocking things, but we also need protection. And, you know, I think that for me, it's I'm, I'm just always looking for how to sort of buffet all of those, like, parts, you know, and kind of like patch all the the holes before we get into this sort of dangerous territory. But ultimately, it's just to know her value and to not, you know, to, I've said this before, and I really, really hope that I can do something to accomplish it, but I never want her to wait by a phone. And obviously, you know, we don't wait by phones anymore. We bring our phones with us, but so we're constantly waiting by phones, essentially. But the idea of that, I don't want that to be something that she does. Well, Lisa... With you as her mum and with the trail that you've blazed and continue to blaze for women and your storytelling, Fox is in very, very safe hands. Oh, that is so kind. You're a good mum. <laughs> Thank you. You are. <laughs> Thank you. You are. You are enough because you spread that message through your writing and work and I think it's important for you too to hear that, that you are enough as you are. Thank you, Jess. I really do appreciate that a lot. Thank you so much for spending time with me and with our listeners. It has been a real privilege to meet and talk with you because, as I said, I'm a massive fan of what you do and I'm sending you the biggest hug (laughs) from my studio here. Thank you. I'm receiving it. Thank you so much. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. I hope you got as much out of that chat as I did. So many things that we can think about. And what about that notion of, okay, I've only got this body 
for today. What am I going to do with it? And I hope you do something sensational with it today. Now, you can watch the full series adaptation of Lisa's internationally best-selling book, Three Women, only on Stan right now. And i got to tell you, I loved it. It is a bit steamy, not even a bit steamy, it is very steamy. So perhaps don't have your kids around when you're watching it, but I highly recommend it. I loved it, along with her extraordinary book. And we have so many incredible guests for you this year on the Jessro Big Talk Show podcast. And it would mean the world to me if you subscribe to the show. Why? It's free. And it means all of these great conversations will be quicker for you to access in the app. So you'll never, ever have to go searching for an episode. And if there's someone in your life who you think might enjoy this chat with Lisa, who you think is perhaps looking for that extra spark in their lives. You might be talking with them about what's happened. How can we tap into that inner part of ourselves again? Why not share this chat with them by simply tapping the three dots on your screen and pass it on. 